Conversations with Friends is the current flagship BBC drama. I wonder how many of you have been watching it. If you haven't, you will have certainly seen the adverts. This adaptation of Sally Rooney's novel has had the full BBC budget thrown at it. At the heart of the story is an affair between young writer Francis and an older married actor, Nick. And before they sleep together for the first time, Frances tells Nick that she doesn't want to be a homewrecker. Nick responds that his marriage has survived several affairs already. And it becomes clear as the story progresses that Nick has no intention of leaving his wife, despite both of their infidelities. The way the BBC has marketed this drama has been to highlight, and I quote, the unconventional and modern relationship dynamics at its heart. It is an exploration of current attitudes towards marriage, intimacy and fidelity. The drama suggests that the concept of adultery is changing among the new generation of young people. Non-monogamous relationships are on the rise. And what that means is that more and more marriage partners are agreeing to their spouse sleeping with someone else whilst remaining committed to one another. And the drama goes on to question whether those sorts of arrangements within a marriage can ever really lead to true happiness. I will let you watch the series for yourself to see what happens. Now, we may assume from watching dramas like Conversation with Friends that British society is becoming more and more liberal. But strangely enough, statistics seem to tell us otherwise. In 1983, there was a survey done on British attitudes towards marriage and adultery. Back then, 59% of married people said while somebody committing adultery was always wrong. A further 26% said it was mostly wrong. 30 years later, in 2013, the same survey was repeated to see how attitudes had changed. And the results surprised most commentators. 30 years on, there was now a greater percentage of people who thought that adultery was wrong. 65% of people now apparently think that adultery is always wrong. So what's going on here? Well, sociologists point out that marriage used to be seen predominantly as an economic partnership, the stable arrangement for raising children. In other words, it was seen largely as a practical institution. But now, many people think that they can handle the practicalities without getting married at all. So the people that do go through with getting married are doing it for another reason. The people who are still getting married today are doing it more on the basis of romantic love. And if you think about it, this makes sense. If you're getting married to strengthen an emotional relationship rather than just fulfill a legal contract, you're going to have a much more negative view of adultery. In fact, many people who have been recently married today describe adultery as unforgivable. 
And rather than trying to work through the painful indiscretion, the marriage gets dissolved instantly. So it appears that our society is rather confused and the younger generation are getting sent very mixed messages. Non-monogamous relationships are on the increase, but adultery within a marriage where one of those unconventional arrangements has not been agreed is seen as more destructive than ever. So how are we to make sense of all of this? Where can we go for some wise advice to help us navigate the minefield, both for ourselves and to pass on to the younger generation growing up in our community? Well, of course, in everything that I've said so far, we've not turned to the Bible. We've not looked to the instructions God gives on marriage and fidelity. And that is a pretty important insight to gain when you consider that God created human beings and invented marriage. He knows what is best for our emotional and physical and spiritual well-being, for he has designed us to work in a certain way. And as a church, we're reading through the book of Proverbs, and it's a book of wisdom, a book of guidance and practical common sense to help us all live life to the full. And in our reading today, we're going to see God's instruction on how to get the most out of marriage and sex. And as ever in the opening chapters of Proverbs, this wisdom comes in the form of experienced parents passing advice onto their son before he goes out into the big wide world. One of the things that I love about Proverbs is that it is so blunt. You do not need me to explain to you what this passage says. There is nothing here in this chapter that we cannot understand. But of course that simplicity comes with a challenge. We are left with no excuse as to whether we follow it or not. The Bible's wisdom on marriage and sex is straightforward. A marriage of exclusive fidelity leads to great joy, whereas adultery and unfaithfulness lead to destruction. And there is a very sobering reason given in this chapter as to why that is the case. It's because God sees what we are up to. Listen again to verse 21. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. So God is intimately involved in our marriages. In fact, God is watching what we do in every moment of every day. He knows what takes place behind closed doors, and he will bring it out into the open. The Bible presents God as a God of supreme faithfulness, and he looks for this to be mirrored in his people. And he personally ensures that there are consequences for when that is not the case. This is not because God is harsh and punitive, but because God is just and loving. And he wants to prevent the great pain that unfaithfulness causes. 
The truth that God sees all that we do is a reminder of what we learnt throughout this series in Proverbs. The beginning of living a wise life, the way to start making the right choices, is to live in fear of God, the all-seeing God. But this then raises a question for us. If marital faithfulness leads to great joy, and if adultery leads to great pain, and if we're all aware that God can see all of our actions, why on earth do so many of us stray into indiscretion and start to look elsewhere? Well, the answer to that is down to the reality of temptation. And it's often far more powerful than we think. And this is where our reading began. The father tries to open the eyes of his son to see just how dangerous temptation is. Now it may be that you're sitting here tonight thinking, well, I'm not married, so this passage doesn't really apply to me. I'm going to nod off for the next 10 minutes. Or maybe you've been married a very long time and there's relatively little chance that adultery is going to be something that you fall into at this stage of your life. I would still encourage you to listen to this. For no matter who we are, we face different temptations of different kinds. But in essence, temptation always works the same way. Let's have a look. Verses 3 to 4 speak of the power of temptation And as this passage is about marriage, these verses outline the temptation of the adulteress. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Quite simply, temptation always works through enticement. It makes a great promise to us when in truth the reality is very different. And Proverbs uses incredibly visual metaphors to hit the message home. The adulterous woman's lips drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. And by holding these two together, the writer is making clear that that rush of adrenaline that comes with a deep kiss is no less sweet and entrapping than seductive words of praise. This is sheer enticement, the trap of the honeypot. Temptation snares us by offering us an escape from reality. Adultery is the promise of easy pleasure with no commitment. Adultery comes to people who are stressed and struggling in other areas of their life because it seems to offer them a quick release from it all. Adultery comes to those who've not invested in their marriages in the years gone by as a quick solution to the gaping hole that's now going to need a lot of work to fill. This is temptation, enticement, escape, easy access to gratification. And whether you're tempted by adultery or theft or lies or overeating or binge drinking or boasting or gambling or shopping or idle distraction, all works the same 
way. But of course, temptation is a mirage. And once it's been fallen for, the reality soon hits. The woman whose lips were dripping honey are soon found to be as bitter as gall. Her lavish words, sharp and deadly like a sword. Whereas the temptation seems such a great option, a quick path to success, it is found to lead to disaster. I want to move on a little now and think about the consequences of giving in to temptation. Verse 5 is very strong, isn't it? Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. The Bible is very clear about this. Falling for temptation leads us into sin and sin leads to death. Verse 6 tells us that the things that we are tempted by pay no thought to our own well-being. They are only out for themselves. The adulterous woman is a character that keeps appearing in Proverbs. She's a regular metaphor for temptation. We first met her back in chapter 2, where we were told in verse 17 of that chapter that she had left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Of course, that verse could relate to her leaving her marriage to her husband, but it also relates to God. In the Bible, God's people are seen as married to him. God has made covenantal vows to us, and we have pledged our allegiance in return. So what we have in Proverbs is this adulterous woman, this source of temptation, who has herself abandoned God's ways. She has walked away from the Lord. She has rejected his word. And she calls all those around her to join her on her path, the wrong path. And again, there's something important here about the way that all temptation works. The more we give into it, the further we are led astray from what is right. The more we give into it, the harder our heart becomes. We may think to ourselves, well, it's only a little sin. God will forgive me. But once we've done it, we become more comfortable with it. And then we get tempted by something bigger and we fall for that as well. In the language of Proverbs, we get tempted further and further off God's path until we lose sight of it altogether and cannot get back. And it's God's path that leads to life and the path of sin that leads straight down to the grave. In very simple terms, if you try to live comfortably with adultery in your life, you will end up rejecting the God who is expressly against it. Reject God and you have no hope. We're talking about adultery here, but we're talking about temptation in general. If we keep ignoring God's word, if we keep ignoring the Holy Spirit at work in our conscience, eventually there comes a point of no return. Yes, God can forgive all of our mistakes and sin. That's what Jesus died for. And if that's you tonight, you can be forgiven. But there comes a point where we stop asking for forgiveness. And then we are lost. 
Now, with that rather daunting truth in mind, I want us to now look at verses 7 to 14. For here we discover something wonderful about the way that God has made his world to work. God has designed his world to work in such a way that there are always consequences for sin. Through his justice, he has laced discipline through the very fabric of our society. Why does God discipline us? Because he is trying to turn us back to him before it's too late. Earlier on, we read that verse announcing that God sees all we do and acts accordingly. Well, here is the good news. God isn't watching on with bated breath, longing to catch us out and throw a thunderbolt at us. God is watching on to look after us. He's doing his best to keep us from harm. So if giving in to temptation eventually has eternal consequences, it ultimately leads us to death if we don't repent from it, the consequences that we experience in the present are the warnings that God is trying to get through to us that we need to turn around before it's too late. So what does this father tell his son of the consequences of adultery? If you commit adultery, there is relational damage. You lose honour and dignity in the community. You lose friends and colleagues, verse 9. If you commit adultery, there is financial damage. Homes break and divorce is very expensive, verse 10. If you commit adultery, there is mental damage. You end up living with a lifetime of regret and loss, verses 11 to 13. If you commit adultery, there is spiritual damage. Trouble is caused in the church. Division occurs. Fellowship is weakened. Verse 14. Can you see, these are all the earthly consequences to adultery. And we've seen it happen enough times in our community to know that every single one of these is real. But all of these consequences are God's way of calling us to turn back to him. The suffering that we experience as a consequence of our sin is discipline. God loves us so much. He yearns for us to avoid the eternal consequence of hardening our heart and leaving his path completely. And the passage ends with a fervent reminder of just what those consequences are. Verses 21 to 23. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Temptation is dangerous. Adultery is dangerous. We need to open our eyes and make the right choices now. God wants us to be with him. God wants us to flourish. This is his heartfelt wisdom trying to guide us into good life. Okay, so we've now heard the warning about adultery loud and clear, but that's not where I want to finish. The great beauty of Proverbs 5 is that it doesn't just argue for marital faithfulness from the negative, i.e. if you commit adultery, disaster awaits. No, at the heart of this passage is the argument for marital faithfulness from the positive. 
Marital faithfulness leads to joy. And right at the centre of this chapter in verses 15 to 20 are a great celebration of the joy of sexual fidelity within a marriage. Let me read them to you again. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe and a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? You know, the Bible never hides its delight in God's design and purpose for human sexuality. The church may often be full of prudes where any talk of sex is taboo, but the Bible is not prudish at all. And this passage affirms sexual delight. And again, I love the visual imagery it uses. It speaks of the erotic acts within a marriage like a refreshing fountain of blessing. Now think about that for a moment. Water is the most precious resource in a semi-arid country like Israel. It can never be taken for granted. And in a land where there's not enough rain, deep underground wells are essential. They are something that the people rely on. And still to this day, wells in Israel are seen as a sign of God's generosity. Sex within a faithful marriage should be thought of in the same way. A precious resource that should be treasured. A source of strength in the challenges of life. A sign to us of God's generosity. As Christians, we should never be ashamed of physical attraction. We should never be ashamed of that electric delight of touching our spouse's body. In verse 19, the father encourages his son to be intoxicated by the love of his wife. And the Hebrew word love in that verse actually means love making or sex. The son is to find great joy in making love to his wife. And when you hold verses 19 and 20 together, Proverbs makes it clear that the best sex is in marriage. Within a marriage, you come to know each other's bodies. You trust each other enough to play and to experiment. In a marriage, you are committed to putting your partner's needs before your own. And in the bedroom, that is always the route to greatest pleasure. Proverbs says, to imagine that you will find better sex outside of your marriage is sheer stupidity. Now, of course, all sorts of people commit adultery today because their marriages have ceased to be this place of sexual play and delight and touch and intimacy and physical engagement. But that's not because there's something wrong with God's design of marriage. That's because we haven't put the effort in required to keep our marriages alive. So those of us here this evening who are fortunate enough to be married... We're to listen to this part of the chapter as much as the warning about adultery. No matter how long we've been married for, we are to invest in 
and prioritize the intimate expression of our love to one another. We are to take the time to be romantic. We are to make space for affection, even if it's just a kiss and cuddle on the sofa. We are to communicate to each other about our needs and desires. We're to take nights and weekends away just to reconnect with one another. One of the best safeguards for marriage is to keep it exciting. We must not let our marriages become a semi-arid desert like Israel is. We need to keep creating these wells of intimacy. So in conclusion, I think it's fair to say that the issue of marriage and sexual faithfulness is a very deep one. Proverbs 5 tells us that adultery leads down to the pit, whereas fidelity is like a well of blessing. Not all of us are married here tonight, and we acknowledge the pain and the loss that that can bring. The church is a place for single people just as much as it is for those who are married. Of course, the most important marriage we all have is with God. And the Bible describes the second coming of Jesus like a wedding day. Within our relationship with God, he will forgive us for our mistakes. And that includes adultery. But we also need to fight temptation with everything that we have. Because temptation is always more dangerous than we think it is. So as we go from here this evening, let's seek to be people of faithfulness, who demonstrate the faithfulness of God to our onlooking world, through our marriages and through our words and through our actions.